When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome, everyone, to the Most Notorious Podcast. Your presence, as always, is very much appreciated. I am very happy to have as my guest today, Janie Nesbitt-Jones. She is a journalist and true crime writer and a consultant for investigation discovery. With her husband, Wyatt Jones, she has co-authored two books, Hiking Arkansas and Arkansas Curiosities. And she's here to talk about her latest book, entitled The Arkansas Hitchhike Killer, James Weyburn Red Hall. Great to have you. Thank you for coming on. Well, thank you for inviting me. Sure. So as part of my preparation for an interview, I always do some research about the subject at hand um, outside of just reading the book, uh, just to see what else has been written about it. But, but there's not a ton out there about Red Hall, is there? No, there isn't. This is the first book to, to chronicle his life, so I'm pretty proud of that. It did take a lot of research. How, how long have you been working on it? Well, off and on. It wasn't, uh, I wasn't to the point where I could work on it full time. So uh, you know how life interferes sometimes. <laughs> Uh, And sometimes I would take off like six months at a time. So it was over a period of, I would say, five years. And then I couldn't find a publisher at first. I I was so lucky to find the History Press and Arcadia Publishing. They've been very good to me. When did you realize that you had enough material to write a book? Well, uh, I'll tell you, one of the main characters in the book is a reporter. His name was Joe Wurgis. He was with the Arkansas Gazette, which was a morning paper. And Joe was a legend in his own time. 
he was on the police beat and he followed this case. Uh, he alone had exclusive interviews with Red Hall himself. And I went through all of Joe's newspaper articles. I could not have done the book without Joe Wurgis, I don't think. Uh, my other sources, though, included people who had known Red personally. Sadly, most of them are gone now. I also got a lot of information from the tr trial transcript. I learned a lot there. So, uh, but yeah, it was Joe. Without Joe, I wouldn't have had enough material. All I had up until that point were from old detective magazines that I had gotten from a man named Patterson Smith. He's in uh, New Jersey, and he has a vast collection of articles, newspaper and magazine articles, and books about true crime. So I got those old magazines from him. And I might back up a little bit. Um, it was a friend of mine who first suggested writing an article about Red. Um, at that time, and still, I'm a true crime writer for AY Magazine, which is based in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I was trying to think of another article subject, and my friend Wanda said, well, why don't you write about Red Hall? And I said, who's Red Hall? And all she could remember was that she was 10 years old uh, when his trial uh, took place, when he was captured and then his trial, because up until then, nobody knew they had this killer on the loose. But Wanda put me on the track. Uh, she knew it took place in 1945. She sent me to her cousin, Jackie, who knew about the detective magazines. That put me into contact with Mr. Smith, Patterson Smith, and I was able to do the article for the magazine using all that. But then um, there came a point where I needed to take a little break from writing the articles, and I was casting around for ideas for a book. I knew I wanted to write one, and it was my husband, Wyatt Jones, who suggested Red Hall, and I, the light bulb went off, you know, so I thought, yeah, why not Red? Sure. So this is one of those serial killers that really requires a deep dive into their early history, right? That This was a guy who had a really rough upbringing. Yes. He was the son of a preacher, a Baptist preacher, and his father was also a farmer. His mother was Eva Lorraine Ingram Hall, and his father was named Samuel Jerome Hall. His father was overly strict to the point of being cruel. And when Red was a little boy, he would run off at night, run out into the woods. And then he started going around the county. And then he started going all around the state. And by the time he was a teenager, he was going to other states all across the country. He would hop trains and hitchhike. But his first 11 murders, and he confessed to these, the first 11 murders, which took place in 1938, had nothing to do with hitchhiking. His first victim was a woman in Salina, Kansas, on North Santa Fe Avenue. 
And that was all I could find out about her because he just met her on the street. He said that she tried to rob him. But as you get to know Red, you realize that he was a pretty good liar. And he also said later that he couldn't remember their names. Uh, At one point, he said, there are so many I can't remember. So the woman in Salina, Kansas, she remains unidentified. And then he went down to Arizona. He was working as a truck driver for a farm down there. And they had uh, Mexican migrant farm workers employed there. And he killed 10 of those men. So that was 1938, and those were his first 11 murders. And those migrant workers, uh, they remain unidentified to today. But he said later that he basically just led them out into the desert one by one and robbed and murdered them. Yes. Sometimes he would shoot them, and sometimes he would just club them over the head. He was a very strong man. Um, He could beat a person to death. I mean, he did but that comes later. Um, He was very strong. You knew never to get into a fight with Red. In fact, I I talked to someone recently at a book signing, and he said that his father, I believe it was, once almost got into a fight with Red. They were going to fight it out, but he backed down, and I thought, well, that was a good idea to back down. He beat one guy so bad, the man was in the hospital for several months. It happened in an alley behind a bar in Little Rock. They arrested him, of course, for that. But when he came up, up against the judge, the judge listened to what he had to say, and Red told him that he was the son of a preacher and that he was a Navy veteran. He was married uh, in 1939 to a woman named Walsy McKee. She was a little country girl, and they met at church. She lived with her mother, and she never got to go anywhere. She was unsophisticated. Um, She was enthralled by Red's stories about his trips, the things he had seen. Uh, They got along so well. They were married in 1939. And they had two children. Unfortunately, one died at birth, but then they had a second son uh, in 1943. All this time, though, Red was taking these trips. He would go off for weeks at a time. He would send Walsy picture postcards. She didn't like this, of course, because it left all the farming chores to her and her mother, who lived with them. And farming is hard work. And when it came time to put in the crops or if it came time for harvest, they would have to go to her in-laws, to Red's family for help. So she wasn't happy, but she just wasn't the type of personality to raise a stink over it. She was just meek and mild. But in the end, it wasn't Walsy who asked for a divorce. It was red. He said that Walsy's mother stuck her nose into their business too much. So they divorced. But he always made sure that he sent back money, $10 a month, to help support their son. But that was after that, 
It was after his divorce that he was drafted into the Navy and he went to their training camp, but he was discharged after only six weeks for what the Navy called indifference. He didn't know what that meant, but he figured it was the Navy's loss. And then in 1944, he met a girl named Bayrine Clemens. It was a whirlwind courtship and marriage, and he found out pretty soon, though, that Fayreen was nothing like Walsey. She was feisty and independent. Red called her bullheaded. And when he went off on these trips, she insisted on going with him. Something happened on one of those trips, probably in Oregon, because later on, he did allude to the fact that she knew too much. He never elaborated on that. We don't know what she might have seen or heard. He would knock her around a lot. Um, like I said, he was handy with his fists, and she would have bruises all over her when she would go back and visit her family on the farm. Then she left him around June of 1944. But unfortunately, she decided to give it one more chance and she went back to him. And that was a fatal mistake. She moved back in with him, I think, around uh, 1st of August in 1944. And that next month in September, she wanted to go to a ballroom nightclub. It's kind of like a ballroom slash nightclub. It was called the Rainbow Garden. And they had live music and entertainment there. Cab Calloway played there. The Dorsey brothers played there. But she wanted to go just to dance. It was a good place to go for dancing. She invited her friend Katie Bryant to go with them. and. Um, at the end of the evening, Bay's feet were killing her because she had bought some new shoes, but she hadn't broken them in. So after a night of dancing, she wanted to go down in the elevator. Red, out of meanness, I suppose, insisted on going down the stairs. And that is where the fight started. By the time they got out to the car and Katie was still with them, he hit Faye very hard, and she told him that she was leaving him. Well, they all got in the car, and he dropped Katie off at her place, and that was the last time anybody saw Faye alive. About 10 days after that night at the Rainbow Garden, Faye's family were concerned enough about her. They usually kept in touch, very close touch. They communicated with each other about every couple of days at least. So when they hadn't heard anything from her in 10 days, they decided to report her missing. So her mother and her sister, Imogene, went to the Little Rock Police Department where they talked to the detective chief, O.N. Martin and gave him the full story. The family had not been able to get in touch with Red. He was very elusive, but he couldn't get away from the cops. 
he was working as a taxi driver in Little Rock. And he was such a good taxi driver, he could still take off whenever he wanted to and go rambling about because the cab company would rehire him every time. They said he was just so good. He was a little hard on the on the cars, on the equipment, but they really liked him there. So anyway, uh, Chief Martin sent two of his best detectives, uh, Herbert Peterson and Harold Judd, to talk to Red. So they went to the taxi station, and Red said, I don't know. I don't know where she went. She left me that night, and I don't know where she is. They didn't have anything else to go on. So they kind of kept an eye on him, but, you know, without any evidence, they couldn't do anything. After he murdered Fayreen, a few months later, beginning in January 1945, Red went on a killing spree in Arkansas. And I think this was kind of unusual. My theory is that when he killed somebody, he knew they reigned. Maybe even loved at one point. I think it shook him up so bad that it caused him to go on this spree. In January, he killed a barber bootlegger down in Camden, Arkansas. And then shortly after that, he killed a man named E.C. Adams. Mr. Adams was traveling from his home in Kansas to Camden, where they had an ordnance plant there, and he was going to get a job. He picked Red up just as he was leaving Little Rock, and then later that day, the police found his body off the side of the road near Fordyce, Arkansas. Red had shot him in the back of the head. Of course, the police didn't know who he was, but this allowed the state police to become involved. So you have two jurisdictions working on two different cases, Little Rock Police Department working on Faye's disappearance, the state police working on the hitchhike killings, as they became known. Captain J. Earl Scroggin was the uh, Arkansas State Police um, captain in Little Rock, and he was the one who headed up this case. Two of his best detectives were Homer Sims and Rhett Oliphant, and they backtracked Mr. Adams's trip. They went back to Kansas, and then they came on to Arkansas, checking in at different motor lodges, tourist courts and that sort of thing, and stores. And they did find a trail uh, where people had seen him, where he had stayed. And they found out that uh, he probably, they knew that he probably picked the hitchhike killer up in Little Rock. But uh, they didn't really get a clue until the next murder. The victim there was Doyle Mulherin. He was a truck driver for a meatpacking company, and his route was from Conway to Stuttgart. The people along his route, because he went on the same route at least a couple of times a week, 
people along his route recognized him. They knew him. They knew his truck. Two different witnesses said that on that day, they saw him struggling with a young man who had wavy red hair. In the cab of the truck, they were struggling. And they did find Mr. Mulherin's body shortly after that. He also had been shot in the back of the head. So that was the first clue. They got a little bit about what he looked like. He was getting very sloppy. Red usually picked places where they had um, like back roads or out in Kansas. He loved Kansas because you could see motorists coming from a mile away, which gave him time to drag the bodies off into the ditch or whatever. But the next murder in Arkansas, he committed on Highway 65. And anybody in Arkansas knows that Highway 65 was one of the busiest highways in the state. It was down around Lake Conway. He had just pulled over to the side of this busy highway. And this man's name was J.D. Newcomb, Jr. He was a boiler inspector for the Labor Department. And he had picked Red up at a place called Marche, south of Conway. And something happened, though. He may have made Newcomb nervous. For some reason, they pulled over on the side of this very busy highway, and they started struggling. Newcomb did have a chance. He was trying to get that gun. While this was going on, a car drove up and almost stopped. But the driver and the passenger were Mr. and Mrs. Earl Parks. They had a store, a business here in Conway, but they lived down south. So they were driving along there, and Mr. Parks started to stop. But his wife urged him to go on because she said, it's just a couple of drunks fighting it out. So they did drive on, and luckily they drove on because I know that Red would have killed them in a second. Uh, in fact, they would have witnessed the murder of J.D. Newcomb because it was probably mere seconds later that he got the upper hand and he shot Mr. Newcomb in the face, point blank, killed him instantly. The funny thing about Mr. Newcomb, aside from it happening on the side of a busy highway, was um, Red wanted to put, he said, he said later, in an interview, he wanted to put Mr. Newcomb's body in water somewhere. He went on through Conway, and if he'd taken a left, he could have gone to the Arkansas River and put the body in there. But he ended up going on this long, it was over 200, it was like 278 miles, one way. He just kept carrying the body around in the car, and he would pass over uh, like the Little Red River lakes and places like that. He just wasn't making any sense. But finally, his car, or Mr. Newcomb's car, I should say, had a flat tire. 
So Red had to pull it off the road and he got off in a little blade for some cover. He took Mr. Newcomb's uh, bluish gray coat and um, he may have taken some money. And then he set fire to the car with Mr. Newcomb's body inside. Then he went to a place called Tumbling Shoals and he flagged down a bus that was on its way back to Little Rock. When the state police investigated this case, all they could find from the passengers in the in the bus and the bus driver, they remembered him, but they they couldn't give a description. They didn't know a name. They said he had a, on a bluish gray coat. So they knew that was Mr. Newcomb's coat. So, yeah, he did that. And we will be back after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? back again. So police were eventually able to connect a murder to Red Hall, courtesy of a man named Lonnie Blaine, specifically to his weapon. Lonnie Blaine, yes. 
Lonnie Blaine was a taxi driver at that same company with Red. And Red asked Lonnie, could he borrow Lonnie's cab? And he told Lonnie that he had some business to do down in Camden with a bootlegger and barber. I think he just said bootlegger. So uh, Lonnie let him borrow that car. Well, Lonnie always kept a 45 caliber gun in the little side pocket of the car door. And when Red returned the car the next day, Lonnie checked that gun and saw that two shots had been fired. Then he heard on the news about the victim in Camden, whose name was Carl Hamilton, the bootlegger. So Lonnie put two and two together, and he knew Red had done it. But he couldn't report that to the police because Lonnie himself had a criminal record. He was an ex-con. And he was afraid he would be implicated in, in that. He didn't tell anybody except for one woman. And it was either somebody like a sister or an aunt, maybe even his mother. I was never able to find out. He did confide in her. So that's important to remember. And then uh, along about this same time, Red got into that fight I was talking about earlier uh, behind the bar where he beat the guy so bad. And he got off telling the judge that he was the son of a preacher and he was a Navy veteran. And the judge let him off with just a fine and court costs. So the Little Rock Police Department, Detective Owen, they heard about that. And then it was along about that same time that uh, Captain Scroggin with the state police got that tip. He got a tip on the phone from a woman, and it was the lady that Lonnie Blaine had been talking to. And that blew the case wide open. So that was the first time that the Little Rock Police Department and the state police knew they were after the same man for two different crimes. So it was unusual, I think, in, in, in that the two jurisdictions worked so well together. Sometimes you hear about uh, police departments not working that well together. Sometimes they, one will want to take the credit. But not the not this time. They were super super good, and uh, they did go arrest Red, and they brought him in, and they let him stew a while in jail overnight. Then the next evening they took him in for an interrogation, and um, everybody was there. Everybody who had been involved on the case, the detectives, and the chiefs the captain, and Joe Burgess. So Joe was there even for the confession. Uh, it took a while. It took a while um, for him to confess. But Herbert Peterson, the detective, Herbert Peterson, he was the one who finally got, he, he did get credit for that confession. And, you know, when they had him and he, Red knew they had him, he just kind of, rocked back in his chair and said, 
Okay, you got me. I'll tell you all about them. I killed them all. And that's where he really started talking, and they couldn't shut him up. <laughs> and th then the next day after that, he led them to Fayreen's remains. He had taken her out on the old river road by the Riverside Golf Course. It was where water would come in, and he thought if the water didn't take away the remains, he figured he didn't bother to bury her. He just left her there. He figured the animals would take care of it. But he was able to lead them there. And then with a little help from a woodcutter who lived right close to, to that spot, he had actually found the skull. He had found Payreen's skull one day. and. Uh, he didn't think anything about it. He just took it home with him and tossed it in the loft of his barn. And uh, But then when they were out there looking, well, he came over to see what was going on. And they told him, and he said, oh, yeah, I've got the skull up at the house. And then he start, He said, and I think the jawbone, I saw the jawbone, but I didn't take it. Let's see. It, I think it was over here somewhere. And sure enough, they find the Fayreen's jawbone. And that became part of the evidence in the trial that was to become because she had a very distinctive buck tooth on her lower jaw. And that was important in the trial. Also, when they nabbed him, they searched his home and found a lot of incriminating evidence, correct? Yes, yes, they did. Um, it took two, two trips, actually. The first time they went, it was kind of funny. There was a magazine. It was a detective magazine on the table, uh, well-worn. You could tell he had read it a lot, and it was turned to a page uh, that told about how you could change bullets so that ballistics tests would not be able to connect them to the same gun. He also had a Bible, which looked like it had never been opened. But they also found that the first time they went, they found a 32 caliber gun, but they found shells for a 38. They also found a part of Mr. Newcomb's car. It was a car seat, and he had stuck uh, a watch inside there. But then... I think it was the same day or the next day, Detective uh, Martin himself went back to the apartment and he did a little bit more digging around in the dresser drawer and he found that 38 between some shirts. So that was the main gun. The first gun was Lonnie Blaine's. That was a 45, but Red switched. The rest of the killings were done with that 38. And, uh, the ballistic expert with the state police was Alan Templeton, and he was able to match that 38 with all the rest of the, the ones that followed after Mr. Hamilton's murder. He knew the same gun killed Mr. Newcomb, Mr. Adams, and Ms. Mr. Mulherin. So they knew they had him on all, all of those crimes, and, and Red took them. He took all the 
lawmen and some reporters, more reporters were there for the finding of Fayrine's remains. But then the police wanted to be absolutely sure that they had enough on him. They didn't want anything to foul up the case against him. So he took them to all these murder scenes. And that's where you really get to know Red because Joe Wurgis was in the car with him all the time. So, you know, I said that Red liked to talk. So Joe really got to know him and Red almost felt like the police were friends. He said they were a swell bunch of guys at one point. Until it came to, until it came to the trial, and then he said um, they abused him in some way to get the confession. Um, he said it was coerced, but um, they had enough witnesses, including Joe Wurgis, to say that it was not coerced. His lawyer, oh, his lawyer. Now that's an interesting character too. His name was M. V. Moody. And he tried every which way to get his client off. That part of the book is humorous. And I will say that there is humor in the book. It's not all grim, not all about dead bodies, especially when they're with Red out on the highways going to these crime scenes. And at one point, they stopped at the Cleburne County Courthouse, and Red had them open. Uh, it was a big window because a crowd of about 500 people had gathered outside. The little communities were all close enough together. They word got around that Red Hall was in this motorcade, so they were there at the courthouse outside and Red started talking to him from the window and uh, uh, somebody said who's your mother and Red would say Eva Lorraine Ingram and the guy said that's what I thought I know her it reminded me of Charlie Starkweather if you've ever watched that Terrence Malick movie uh, Badlands and at the end of it Starkweather was so nonchalant about everything. He was giving things away to the the cops around him. And that's kind of the way Red ended up. Charlie Starkweather, he was kind of proud to, to leave. He wanted people to know his name and remember it. But Red, Red didn't, that's the funny thing about Red Hall. He didn't do it for money. He never got very much. He didn't do it for sexual gratification. He just had a compulsion to kill. And some people, and I'm included in that, I think it might have been partly because of a head injury that he had suffered when he was about 12 years old. Uh, it was in a farming accident. Although some people kind of whispered that his father might have hit him once too often and once too hard. But however it happened, he was unconscious for quite a while. And then it was several weeks 
people said, before he was back to himself. And after that, they said he really wasn't ever himself again. So I tend to think that there was damage to the frontal lobe, maybe. You know, that a lot of serial killers have that in common, head injuries. They also have um, abusive home lives. Um, and Brent's father was abusive, both psychologically, verbally, and physically. So Red kind of fits in with a lot of other serial killers. It's just that uh, the reason there wasn't as much written about Red Hall was because it took place during the war, most of it. As I said, he started in 1938 killing people, but during the war, he just really revved up. He he did confess to, uh, let's see, a man in Texas. They never could verify that, but I do believe Red there. Some people say that he was sort of like Henry Lee Lucas. He started confessing to more crimes than he committed. I don't think so. I think he really did commit a lot more. And this was a surprise to the cops. They didn't know this until they were on one of those trips to a crime scene and they were coming back home and Red said there were more and Peterson raised an eyebrow and said more how many are we talking about and Red said more like 24 and 12 and I had already counted up 17 it's pretty easy to count up to 17 there were the 10 in Arizona, the one in Salina, five in Arkansas. So, you know, you've got a good start there. But I think he did kill a lot more. And when all of this did finally come out, lawmen from jurisdictions all over the country were interested. They were trying to clear some of their unsolved cases. And he fit the bill in a lot of them. And I think particularly in Oklahoma, I think if you really got to look at possibilities, possible victims, Oklahoma. Oklahoma had a, a flurry of what they called hitchhike-related murders around Miami, Oklahoma, and um, there was a murder in Seminole, Oklahoma, that the sheriff there was, or actually it was the police chief, Jake Sims, who thought that Red was probably guilty of killing a man named uh, Jim Owen there in Seminole because Jake Sims, he had seen Red. Red had been there several times, so Sims was familiar with him, and he said the more he talked to Red, the more he believed that he was the one who killed Jim Owen. I tried to get in touch with um, Owen's family. I was unsuccessful in doing that. I was able to connect to another family. Red was suspected of killing a Dr. Lambert, who had already picked up another hitchhiker named Corporal Nipper. I was able to talk to a cousin of Mr. Nipper's, and he told me that Yes, they thought that he must have been a victim of a serial killer because nobody was ever 
prosecuted in that case. So if he killed Nipper, he killed Lambert because they were together at the same time. And and that that is where it gets so sad. It's it's sad. It's funny at times. Um, it's just a, it's a wild story, but it's true. On that road trip that he took with police, he told them that part of what he believed made him a successful murderer was that he could talk people into doing what he wanted them to. Um, he, he was very charismatic, very charming, right? He was, and he wasn't bad looking. And he said, and it's it's not in the way you use your thumb or stand or anything like that. It's in the look you give them. And he's right about that. Yeah. He He said one time, you know, if you let me out here, I'll bet you I could walk up to somebody and ask for $20 and they give me $20. He was just, he was charismatic. He really was. But he was, a, to me, I think he was a complete psychopath. In the book, I do go into quite some detail during the trial because uh, Mr. Moody, his lawyer, pleaded insanity. And uh, he was examined at the state hospital and at the trial. It was sort of a battle of the psychiatrists. Each one would get up there and give their opinion as to his sanity and their definition of a psychopathic personality, mainly somebody who has no conscience. And Red admitted he had no conscience. He said that he had no compunction, I believe so the word he used, about killing anything. A cat, a human, you know. Um, in the early part of the book, I talk about how hog killing time on the farms was a cause for celebration. And Red's father was the one who actually killed the hog and then slit its throat and eviscerated it. And Red saw all that. And I think it desensitized him. And then after that, I think that may have happened before the head injury, and then after the head injury, that just removed all his inhibitions about carrying out these crimes that he did. So there, there were, of course, prosecutors with really good cases against Red Hall, based on his confessions, um, the physical evidence, and, and many of them could have gone after him for murder. But who was in the front of the line? Who was he ultimately tried for killing? Fayreen. Yes, there was some dis discussion from the different jurisdictions. Um, the sheriff in Faulkner County wanted to try him here for Mr. Newcomb's murder because it happened in Faulkner County. But the prosecuting attorney in Little Rock, uh, Sam Robinson, he thought they had the best case in Fayreen's murder. They had recovered her remains. She was wearing a very distinctive clothing, and they had scraps of that. So that was something they should, could show the, the jury. And they also had her jawbone. See, Red and M.V. Moody kept saying, you can't prove that that is Fyrene. 
you can't prove that. That's just a piece of hair there. And somebody found this. And somebody else found this bone. Somebody found that bone. You can't say that this is Fayreen. But they had the they had the goods on him there in Pulaski County. And the thing was, they didn't want him to be tried in one county and uh, get a life sentence there and then be tried in another for death get the death penalty because first he'd have to serve life and then he'd have to be executed. So yeah, Mr. Robinson in Pulaski County had the strongest case. They weren't allowed to talk about any of the hitchhike killings in the trial. It was strictly Fayreen. Now a momentary break to help pay the bills back in a flash. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned. So what did Hall's attorney do to try to establish him as insane? He called several psychiatrists, well-known psychiatrists. They've been psychiatrists for decades. And like I said, it was kind of a battle between the psychiatrists because 
the prosecutor also had to put on psychiatrists to rebut the testimony given by the defense's psychiatrists. And there toward the end, uh, Moody was getting pretty desperate. I mean, he was desperate. He really wanted to save save the young man. Red, though, he, he, he started, he kind of caught on to really, I think, how he should have acted because one of the psychiatrists who spent a very short time talking to him had said that Red now said that he had auditory hallucinations. That had never come up before. That was just something that Red came up with. He just made that up. But that Moody was just trying to drag it out, and uh, in the end, that didn't really help. See, the reason he was never really known well, like I said, was because of the war. When the hitchhike-related killings were going on in the state, people didn't really pay that much attention, even in Arkansas, because they were concerned with the war. The war was coming to a close in Europe, and they were all always looking at the newspapers, trying to learn more about what was happening, looking at the missing in action and all like that. And then the trial actually took place in May, and the trial was going on during VE Day. The, the war was over. So inside the courthouse was a very somber atmosphere, while on the outside, people were dancing in the streets, having a party out there because the war was over. Uh, and that is why he's not very well known. Today, it, I mean, there are a lot of serial killers, I know, and a lot of hitchhike, and a lot of truck drivers, you know, about that, I guess. Truck drivers are mobile, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying all, all truck drivers, um, but people who are mobile, and with the interstate now the way it is, that's why you have so many with names like the I-95 killer, the Santa Rosa hitchhike killings, and various names like that. So would you talk about the verdict, the sentence, and the rest of Red Hall's short life? Yeah, okay. The judge told the jury they could either find him guilty, not guilty by reason of insanity. They could have, they could show mercy which would mean a life sentence, they could say without mercy, and that would be the death sentence. And um, that's what they came down with was the death sentence. So they took him to uh, Tucker Prison. That's where the, the electric chair was. But the night before the execution, he was in a pretty good mood. Um, he'd been a little bit nervous. But he calmed down, and um, he was real friendly with his jailers. And then he got to say his goodbyes uh, to his family and to Thayreen's father. And with his family, he was joking around with one of his brothers. And um, then he told Mr. Clemens, Faye's father, that he was sorry, that it was an accident, but he also said 
I didn't do it. I mean, he was like that. He would just go from one lie to another in the very next sentence. But Mr. Clemens, he tried to be forgiving, but he just couldn't. He, he did tell Red that he had no ill feelings toward Red's family. And that seemed to comfort Red a little bit. And, of course, they, they shaved his head. And when it came time for the execution, he was just very calm. And there is a song. Let me tell you about this. In the book, I mention a song that I was never able to trace. I had heard from my friend Wanda, the very source of this story, my friend Wanda. She said there had been a, a song written about him. I never could find out about that. Well, the book, the book went to press. And then I find this Facebook message from a lady who knew that song. And the song is Just 13 Steps. That's the title, Just 13 Steps. You can listen to it on YouTube. Um, the first person who wrote it or sang it, I don't know if he wrote it, Luke Gordon. Um, the Oak Ridge Boys did a later version, but it's a, basically the same song, just 13 steps. Because, And my husband wondered about that because it's usually 13 steps up to a hanging gallows. But in this case, they do mention that it's a an electric chair and it was just a short ways, you know, it's like 13 steps away. So I wanted to tell you about that. Um, but he was very calm. Um, he walked right to, up to the chair. They strapped him in. They got him ready. There were a lot of witnesses there, but very quiet. And um, he didn't say a word. He did not say a word for once. And they covered his face and and he was executed. And then after the execution, back then, the state police they had a tradition of making a plaster cast out of a, it's a death mask. A plaster cast would go over the executed man's face and they would keep that death mask. And for the longest time, those death masks were kept by the state police. But a few years back, they were getting bad press, I guess, for that, and most of them just disappeared. I think they're in the hands of some former police, maybe. There were only two. There are only two left, and Red's was one of them. Uh, it had fallen off the wall at one time, so it broke a little bit, but they were able to repair it. So I have a picture of the death mask in the book. And uh, it looks like he's grinning, but it's a grimace from when the electricity surged through his body. It's a grimace, but it does like, look like he's smiling through eternity there. And then um, after his execution, he was brought back to Faulkner County for burial. And I was able to talk to someone who knew Walsey, his first wife. She attended the funeral. It was in January 1946. 
it was hard to find flowers, but she said somebody found some red camellias. And she said that it was um, a graveside service, a gray velour coffin. And the interesting thing about Red's burial place is that he is buried in Marcus Hill Cemetery, not with his family, but very near to Walsey. Walsey married again, but she died in 2000. And when she died, she was buried there, and her her grave is separated from Red's grave by her mother's. And I thought that just spoke volumes. It she she must have still loved him in some way. I just thought that was so interesting that she's buried so close to him, and that her mother is the one between. And then there's a little stone, a little flat stone marker without a name. But I think that's probably the baby who died at birth. But his family, they're buried somewhere else. And there was, when I started writing this book, um, I did talk to his relatives. I talked to a cousin and I talked to a nephew. And the nephew said that his mother, who was married to one of Red's brothers, his mother would never allow him to learn anything about Red, about his uncle. And that man's, uh, he committed suicide. Uh, One of Red's brothers committed suicide. And one contact I tried to make was uh, a sister. Uh, I happened to go to school with um, a relative of theirs. And at first they said yes, but then they said no. Or actually, they didn't say no. They just Uh, didn't ever get back to me after my second request. And I can understand that. I understand. But their son, uh, Walsey and Red's son, he grew up. He had a family. He was in the Air Force, but he died at the age of 29. He was just a few weeks shy of his 30th birthday. I found out after the book went to press that he died of a heart attack, but that's all I know. Um, I do know where his children, grandchildren, I do know where they are. I deliberately leave them out because they may not know who their grandfather was, and uh, I don't think he would want them to know. So what, in your mind made Red Hall a serial killer? I do believe it had a lot to do with the head injury and the uh, abuse that he suffered at home at the hands of his father. He was just, uh, when he had that head injury, it cut off the inhibitions that he had that would would have controlled what he did. But um, it's so common among serial killers that I have to believe it was partly, and this was in in court, you see, and one thing I don't always mention, and I forget about this, Jackie Anthony, now he would, he knew uh, Red when Jackie would have been, uh, Jackie was about 16 years old, and he and a friend had gone to Oklahoma, they were in uh, Okmulgee, Oklahoma, it was twilight time, and they were outside enjoying the evening, and 
they saw this guy coming toward them. And Jackie said that Red always so, sort of led with his left side, sideways almost. And that, I think, is also an indication of some sort of neurological disturbance probably caused from that accident, caused by it. So it would be, I, don't, I just think that it was a combination of the physical, the neurological disturbance in the brain combined with the abuse at home. So as far as the definition of a serial killer, there are different definitions out there. Um, Hall was a little bit different than what people generally consider to be the norm for serial killers. There was no sexual gratification element to it, as you've said. Uh, no drawn-out torture, just him and a gun, basically, and a compulsion. Right. It was either with a gun, he did beat some of his victims, um, like Fayreen, he did beat her to death with his bare hands. Um, but no, he never tortured, no. No, they, they were interested in him uh, in that Frome case from uh, Texas, uh, the woman and her daughter who were killed down there. And uh, it had long been unsolved. And the Texas Rangers came up to talk to Red but I believe that they were killed by somebody in the drug trade because they were tortured, tortured, and the, their car was torn up like somebody was looking for something hidden in the car. And that really sounds like um, uh, drug smugglers. They mistook the lady's car for a car belonging to what they call a mule, somebody smuggling drugs. Because that was not Red Hall style, no. He did not torture. The serial killers interest me, the psychology of it all. Um, and also down through history, I do write about that a little bit. One reason I became interested in true crime was the Boston Strangler. I'm getting on up in years, Eric, and I, yes, I do remember the Boston Strangler. And uh, I used to love to watch the Walter Cronkite news in the evening when I was like 11, 12, something like that. And I remember so specifically um, the first time I ever heard about the Boston Strangler, and it was Walter Cronkite. There was some grainy film footage, black and white, of course, of somebody, a, a dead person, being rolled out on a gurney under a sheet. and Cronkite saying another victim of the so-called Boston Strangler. The Boston Strangler was interesting because he was the first one who was ever really covered by television. He, he was the first one covered by television. I mean, that, that's just so interesting to me. It was almost like they were celebrities, you know, like um, you had movie stars, you had TV actors, you had uh, entertainers politicians, sports figures, and then along comes the Boston Strangler, followed by way too many serial killers. Supposedly, there are about 50 serial killers working in the United States at any given time. And I read somewhere, too, that if you walked past a 1,000 people on the sidewalk, 
one of them would be a serial killer. I don't know how true that is, but I thought it was interesting. Sure. So again, your book is entitled The Arkansas Hitchhike Killer, James Weyburn Red Hall. And the book is pretty much everywhere books are sold, right? Yes, it's um, available in some libraries. I hope to get it better distributed through libraries too, but uh, brick and mortar stores, uh, a lot of different places online. Amazon is just one. Um, so yes, it's it's available out there. And I'm available for speaking engagements and book signings. How can people reach you? Right now, the best way would be through um, Twitter. I don't have my uh, website up yet. Uh, and at Twitter, I'm Janie Jones 1230. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.